Hello, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to this um, School of Christ class. Appreciate you tuning in and listening and watching. Thank you so much. Uh, we are still looking at uh, Romans, but today, as promised in uh, pr the previous uh, the previous class, I want to talk to you today about the issue of sovereignty. Um, this, this thought basically goes back to the very original sessions that we did in Romans when we were talking about Adam and Christ in Romans five and that whole, the dynamic of the two men and how in two men, you see the head, the, the, the rule, the governing headship of all mankind, whether that be in Adam or in Christ, there is a, a headship that is addressed. And looking at this has been some of the most difficult things I've done because, uh, especially when, when uh, regarding the grace reigning as king, and I think, I've come to think and believe that that's, that phrase, and we're going to look at in a moment in, in the uh, New Testament and expanded translation by Kenneth Weiss, how he says it. I think it's probably the most crucial part of this letter, the way it speaks, one of the most, I'll just say it that way, not to get into too much of a theological debate with anybody, but I think it's one of the most crucial things said in this letter. I've been working on some transcripts of these classes that I'm doing, especially the ones on the podcast that I do. Um, and going through them has been great. But once I got to the end of the first chapter of the book, which is, um, where chapter five ends. I was hit with this verse, what we're going to talk about today. And this thing, this, this idea of ruling, reigning, sovereignty, dominion hasn't left me yet. It's, it's been a, it's been quite a, quite a study and quite a search. And I'm seeing just how, how these verses described the comprehensiveness of the rule of Adam and Christ, but the accomplishment of this comprehensive work and the, I'll say it this way, the uninterrupted exercise of sufficient and sovereign power within us. This is what I'm talking about within us. And that's where, that's where the thought of sovereignty with me always has gone. Um, many people 
when you talk about the sovereignty of God, and that has to do with a lot of the ways that Calvinism and other uh, theological ideologies, when they think of sovereignty, they think of every little aspect of the world and what's happening on the earth. And, uh, you know, you also get into some things such as predestination, and they call that a act of the sovereignty of God. And all of that is true. Now, you know, all of that is, is true. And, and I will not, there's some aspect that I disagree with, but we'll put that aside because to me, sovereignty has to do with something internal. When we're talking about sovereignty regarding salvation, and that's what I address. That's, that's where I come. Uh, that's the angle I come to this with. Looking at salvation, the sovereignty is an internal matter, but it's an internal matter that we always seem to leave unexplored. It's, a, it's an element or a, it's an essential element to understand with regard to the salvation of the soul, but it's an essential element that is m many times, or we should say most of the time, missing. As far as the pr presentation of the gospel, and that's why so many people are still in limbo about, you know, how to live this out, how to do this right or do this wrong. And we're always on eggshells and pins and needles about how sure this is because the surety of it has nothing to do with the sovereignty of a greater party than ourselves. It's always dependent on ourselves. And that's where the matter of sovereignty comes in. And you see it in both ways. You see it on both sides of the spectrum. There is a sovereignty address when Paul talks about Adam and Christ or as he brings it down in these verses we're about to read in, in verse 18 of chapter 5 of Romans, sin and grace. Now, let's read this again from the Weiss translation, Romans chapter 5, verse 18. Not sure how far we'll get today on this, but that's a good thing about these. We can continue it. Romans 5, verse 18, for just, again, this is the Weist, Kenneth Weist uh, New Testament, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were constituted sinners. Here's words we need to, we need to pick out, constituted sinners. That means it was done to man through the work agency of another man. It was not something that man did on his own autonomously. It was a work done by the head of a creation, by the sovereign ruler, the one that had dominion over those in his, his sphere of influence, you could say. And because of his act, because of that one act, all who were under his authority, his dominion, his power, his rule, were constituted sinners. Thus, also through the obedience of the one, the many constituted righteous. Again, not a work, but a gift. Not something done by us, but something reckoned in us due to the fact that we are under the rule of that particular man. 
Moreover, law entered in alongside in order that the transgression might be augmented or might abound, the King James said. But where the sin was augmented or abounded, the grace superabounded with much more added to that in order that just as the aforementioned sin, listen to these words, the aforementioned sin reigned as king, reigned as king in the sphere of death. There's his sphere of dominion and influence. The place where his power and authority has uninterrupted exercise. Thus also, the aforementioned grace might reign as king, same terminology, through righteousness, through eternal life, Jesus Christ our Lord. These phrases, these two, was well, the same phrase, but applied to two polar opposite conditions because it's applied to two absolutely opposed men, Adam and Christ. But the same term as far as the rule and the reign or the sovereignty and dominion is exactly the same. The wording's the same because he's, he's presenting the fact that the man has rule in his sphere of influence. Where was the sphere of sin? Death, sin and death. Sin reigned as king in the sphere of death. When we were in death, sin reigned as king. We were under his kingship, under his rule. Well, those of us who have been brought from that kingdom of darkness, from death unto life, are now in the sphere of life eternal a life that is bestowed and given to us all spiritual realities fully and completely. And that grace reigns in total, completely. Now, this is a beautiful thing if we will we'll look at it. And this is, an, again, an aspect that we, we, we so often don't hear addressed. We don't understand the sovereignty of God. We don't understand the sovereignty when relating to our salvation. That our salvation has everything to do with a soul being under the rule and reign of a sovereign, a sovereign ruler. Now, there's a, um, we're going to read some verses about that or, or look at examples of the rule of the king in just a moment. But let me just take a, a phrase here. Sin did abound. This translation talked about where sin uh, the law was given in so that the transgression might be augmented, but it, it the, the word there is abounded, that it, it, it abounded. Well, sin did abound. This word is 
4121 in Strong's. And from the Greek English lexicon, I think that would be equivalent to the Thayer's Greek lexicon or Greek, uh, yeah, Greek lexicon. Here's the definition they give. And I want you to consider this because this is used in a positive way most of the time, but look at this. This word, sin abounded, the word abounded means to have more than enough to meet one's need. Now, this, notice now, this word is used regarding sin. You hear in the church world a lot of times, oh, he's more than enough, and we sing the song, he is more than enough. But Paul uses that term and that terminology and that phrase to describe sin as a state of being, not actions, sin as a state of being as long as we were under the rule of this king called sin. Adam, that headship, sin reigned. Now, what does that mean? It means that this type of rule, the dominion, this comprehensiveness that is more than enough, think of that in relation to sin, not, not relation to righteousness, relation to sin, we could say we had more than enough to meet the need. What need? We had more than enough. We didn't need anything added. This type of sufficiency was our birthright in Adam, in death, under the rule of sin as king. Our birthright, because it was by birth that we came into this realm of death, and by birth we came under the rule of this king. His sovereign rule and dominion and power being exercised without our understanding, without, without our consent. You know why? Because a king does not ask for the consent of his subjects. Your consent matters not. Your permission is not permissible. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't ask for it. It's, it's not necessary. He rules. His authority is unquestioned and unquestionable. We'll see that in a moment. But again, when we were in Adam, that's by natural birth, in Adam, under the headship of Adam, under the kingly rule of sin in the realm of death, our birthright provided to us more than enough. What? Sin, death, corruptibility, perverse, uh, all of the, all the terminologies that you can look at as far as the works of the flesh that Paul talks about. That was our portion and we had it in spades. We had it more than enough to meet the need, to, 
to miss the mark. We were born with more than enough to miss the mark. We were born with more than enough to fall short of the glory of God because of a rule of a king. I didn't have to become a drug addict to get more than enough to be a sinner or to be a heathen or to be corrupt or to be corruptibility itself. I didn't have to, I didn't have to add anything to it. I was born into that realm under that kingly rule. I was born into it. And under that rule, I was given, I had more than enough. Because that internal kingdom of sin, kingdom of darkness was there. And in that kingdom, there was a constituting of that soul under that rule, sinner. You know what that meant? More than enough. Nothing had to be added to it. No activity on my part had to be added. No lifestyle choice. None of that had to be added to make it more sinful than it already was. No, I was born with more than enough. Because there was another party at all times behind the scenes controlling the soul state and providing the soul all things necessary to live Listen, to exist and to continue and to have a state of being and a condition conducive to his reign. Not one thing had to be added. Not one thing. That's, that's, that's what I'm talking about. What a sovereign rule. When well, we're talking about this with Adam, right? So if we look at this with regard to Adam's rule or sin's rule, we have to look at the coming in of the grace of God that much more abounds. Where that abounded, now the grace of God much more abounds. What does that phrase address? Weiss talks about it as grace superabounded with much more added to that. And that's a that's a just a way to try to express just what it means because this word means grace was present in even greater abundance, but here according to Thayer's again, it means to to abound beyond any measure. That's much more than just more than enough. That's exceeding beyond any measurability at all. That's what grace has brought in. That's the superabounding of the grace of God. It's also in the present passive. So it is a present condition that Paul is addressing to these believers. It is a present condition in Christ, and it's a passive thing in Christ, meaning it is not something you actively achieved or produced. It is a passive thing, meaning it was provided to you by the power and strength of another party. It was passively received. It had to be given by another, imputed, if you will. And what was imputed? Everything, not just, not just more than enough necessary. No, no, no. 
but an abundant supply that is in so, that is so abundant that it is it is unmeasurable. That's what the rule of grace is brought in. That's what king grace, one translation commentary says it that way. He calls grace king grace. Bounding beyond any manner or means of measurability. I wrote here, being faced with the abounding of sin, that is more than enough, means there is never a moment where sin lacks in abundance or does not feel full. No matter how bad you do or how righteous you assume you are, as long as you're under the headship of sin, or along, as, as long as you're under the kingly rule and sovereignty of sin, there was an unyielding and constant stronghold, internal constant stronghold. Just consider how Paul now presents grace and grace's rule. Even beyond that abounding of sin, much more, super abounded. I mean, these are people that were just, Paul was just looking for words, looking for a way to describe just how great this is, just how abundant this is. We're talking about the, the thing that comes to us as subjects, as subjects of a particular rule, as subjects of the king, as subjects of a government instituted in grace. He's addressing a something that is so great in its abundance, so great in magnitude, that is beyond any manner, any method, any means of measurability. I wrote again, grace's rule, even beyond the the previous condition of abounding of, of sin. Imagine those of us who are now partakers of this great grace, who are now under the rule of grace as king. We exist in a realm of reality and relationship that is immovable, that is replete with more even added to that. Not just, I mean, just think of this, how immeasurable, he talks about that, how, how beyond searching out he is, his grace is, the unsearchable riches of Christ, of grace, unsearchable because they are immeasurable. There is no end to it. There's no real beginning or end to it. It is beyond any feasible or fathomable, fathomable, that can't say it, measure of, of any fathomable measure, 
the unsearchable riches, something without any conceivable measure at all. And I want us to understand this now in the sovereignty of grace reigning as king. And my intention in this is to describe our salvation. It's immovable. It's a, it, how entirely accomplished it is. How I want us to see salvation in the light of this divine sovereignty of Christ, of a king ruling within the realm of his kingdom, ruling those who have been constituted by his work as righteous. You see that? Constituted righteous. Because we live in the realm of a kind king who has bestowed to his subjects all things. Just as sin did, now much more the grace of God has reigned and constituted all of the subjects of that reign are under that rule to be holy and righteous without sin, complete, missing and lacking nothing at all. And this is the sovereignty that we miss so much because we're still all in an uproar, all, all the time worried and concerned and of how we're doing. How are we doing? Is it enough? No, it is not enough. He is not even just more than enough. He is the immeasurable, superabounding gift, grace. And he rules his land. He rules in his kingdom. He exercises his dominion without any without any well we just said this way you cannot be impeded that rule cannot be lessened or interrupted in any way. Let's read a couple of verses here. Sovereignty of Christ with regard to us as born-again believers, born-again souls, is something I believe to be one of the most essential elements of our salvation. The issue of sovereignty is debated in Christian theology, and the majority of the debate centers on God's sovereignty in matters of natural happenings, sickness, tragedy, that he uses those, those events and situations for his purposes. Also, an issue that governs a large portion of the idea concerning election and predestination. Again, that's, that's a side thing, not debatable by me at this moment. Notice the language used by Paul. I'm going to read some of this that I wrote, and then we're going to read some of these verses. The language employed to describe, to describe this sovereignty is specifically done for, an, for a particular reason. 
Paul in this section picks up his game, picks up his game utilizing metaphors. He will use the headship picture as here. He will use masters and slaves. This is what he does throughout these chapters in Romans. He uses metaphors like the headship and you know, husband and wife and masters and slaves, and he does this. But in these verses, Paul interchangeably combines the idea of headship and the reign of a king because they are interchangeable. However, the change in terms provides us with a glimpse of an essential element of salvation that we have in Christ, and that element, again, is sovereignty. I want to read some verses here that may help us look at this. And then we're going to go back to these verses in Romans 5 and look at it. But I want you to use these as kind of a, a template to see all of this um, maybe a little clearer. In First Chronicles chapter 22, we're going to do verse 9 through verse 10. Behold, a son shall be born to thee, God speaking to, to David. A son shall be born to thee who shall be a man of rest. He shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all of his enemies round about. For his name shall be Solomon. That word, his name, means rest. Listen, and I will give peace and quietness unto Israel in his days, the days of his rule, the days of his reign, the days where he is their king, because I have made him a man of rest, and I have given him peace, tranquility, and quietness from all of his enemies, him rest from his enemies, I'm going to give to the people he rules to the land over which he has full dominion, authority, and power. Peace and quietness. Why do they get it? Because he's their king. If he is a man that has rest from all of his enemies. Guess what that means for the land, the kingdom that he rules? They have that kingdom. Every subject in that kingdom has quietness and rest and peace as long as he reigns. As long as he's upon the throne, peace and quietness, rest and tranquility will be the condition of those who are subjects of his reign. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son. See, there's, there's the... There's the testimony. This is all a testimony of the son of his love, the son, the beloved of God in whom we are accepted and under whose rule we live. Now, I know the questions that come up in our mind. I will address those. But look, he will build a house, has he? Yes. This greater than Solomon, he has built the house. He is the son. I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. The condition of the land or the realm of his dominion 
was singularly determined by the fact that Solomon, the man of rest, reigned as king. His other name was Jedidiah. That word meant beloved of God. Here's the beloved son who sits upon the throne, rules his rules his kingdom, has full authority and power to exercise his dominion. And there's never a moment where that dominion is in question or is up for debate. And we, to me, this shows that actions did not determine the extent of his sovereign rule. The state of the kingdom was secured by the man who was enthroned. The kingdom's condition was entirely dependent upon and determined by the man who was enthroned. And that realm of his rule enjoyed the state that was provided in his very being because he was in their midst. He was the man of peace in their midst. He was the beloved of God in their midst. And to him, God gave peace from all enemies. To him, God gave quietness and tranquility and rest. And those who were under his rule were the beneficiaries as his subjects of that particular condition. They could not take away from it, and they could not add to it. His rule determined it, as it does in Christ. And all, again, all of this is a testimony of that which we have come to under the headship or kingly rule and dominion and sovereignty of Christ in us. Let's understand this. This is not up for debate. And I realize... The questions, and again, we'll talk about that because I've had these questions forever. The same question. But when you understand that the one who is in you is this man of rest, that the one who God has constituted to be your life and in whom he has constituted your soul to have life and to have righteousness and all the attributes that Christ has made unto us, that's, that's the aspect of his sovereign rule. When you see that, when you understand that, yes, we understand it scripturally, but we have to come face to face also with this man who is in us. Understand. This is what settles the issue. Not you getting your stuff together, right? That's what Christian 101 has become or seems to be. You need to get your act straight. Get your stuff together. It's not about that. It's about who reigns. And again, that's a debate in the church. Who reigns? There's no question. Are you born again? Yes. Then he reigns. He rules. Or else you wouldn't be born again. Because sin Sin as a state, sin and grace cannot coexist in the same place. Now chew on that a while. No more than life 
and death can exist in the same place. No more than darkness and light can exist in the same place. And the whole premise of most people's Christianity and their idea and their theology has to do with the coexisting of sin and righteousness. And one's trying to win the battle over the other. Guess what? If he is in you, then he reigns. He rules. It's not a debate. That is a fact. He is not yet fighting a battle against the king of sin and death. He is not still fighting the devil. He's not still fighting you. You understand how we do this? We act like it's us and God fighting one another to see who wins out. It's not a contest. First Kings chapter 4, verse 25. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, from Dan to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. You see that? Well, safely in the days of Solomon. First Kings chapter 5, verse 2 through 4. And Solomon sent to Hiram, saying, Thou knowest how that David my father could not build a house unto the name of the Lord his God, for the wars which were about him on every side until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord, my God hath given me rest on every side. So there is neither adversary nor evil occurring. Wow. What a statement. And you have to keep in mind the kingdom he ruled benefited entirely because God had given him rest on every side and that there is no adversary that can can bring anything against him or defeat. It's all defeated. There's no evil occurrence here. It's all gone. Do you see the, the truth of sovereignty here? How this rule determines everything? Jeremiah 23, verse 5 through 6, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord. I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. And his days, in his days, Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name, whereby he, sh- whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. There are those who believe that this is yet to be established because it hasn't happened on the earth yet. And this is the issue. This is really the issue. And I want to talk about it. They look for this to still happen one day, sometime in the future, because they can look at a place on the earth or look at a segment of this planet and they can say it can't be done, it can't, that can't be fulfilled yet because this particular natural occurrence hasn't happened. 
but it has happened. And it was never intended to be a natural occurrence. It was always intended to have a spiritual conclusion. And it says it right here. That in this day of his coming, the branch, this king who reigns and prospers, they shall be saved and dwell safely in security. And his name is the Lord our Righteousness. Look at the name of the one whose rule produces salvation and security. The Lord, our righteousness. And Paul brings this sovereign work into the very heart of every believer by declaring this one simple statement that declares the rule and sovereignty of Christ provided by God himself. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. As for you, this is again from the Kenneth Weiss translation. As for you, out from him, God, as a source. God was the originator and the source of this thing taking place. So as for you, out from him, God, as a source, are you in Christ, who became wisdom for us from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that even as it stands written, he that boasts in the Lord, let him be boasting. Sovereignty of this man under whose rule we exist leaves no room for boasting except in his sovereign rule. And if you go into the next chapter here of 1 Corinthians, you'll see that that sovereignty and all that it has brought about, the completion, the perfection that he talks about. We speak to those who are perfect, he says. and But yet, the nature of this thing, the nature of the rule of the kingdom that has exacted and exercised in such a tremendous way, and that yet exercises dominion in the soul, in an uninterrupted, unabated way. Yeah, I know. There's, there's, there's kickback on that statement, right? It's of such a nature that no man can understand how the depths of it. Only the spirit can plumb those depths. The unsearchability of this abounding, superabounding grace. He's the only one that can make that known in our hearts by showing us the king that rules, the one who is made unto us by his sovereignty and the exercising of his power. He has made unto us all spiritual realities, all things that is not possible for the subject of the kingdom, but is the very riches of which that subject is a partaker because he is under the rule of that king. It's like the queen of Sheba coming to Solomon after she sees him and beholds him and falls out, basically passes out because of the wisdom and the, the glory that he has about him. When she comes to herself and communicates with him, she says, it was, 
it was true. It was a true report that they told me of your wisdom and of your glory, of your kingdom and its excellency. But I didn't believe them. And that word again, we've said this many times, but that word in the Hebrew, I did not believe it. The word believe there means amen. It's amen. It means there was no amen to their statement. There was no amen, no so be it, no confirming word to their report. But I've come and I've seen you. Here's where the confirming word comes. It doesn't come by preaching and teaching. It comes by beholding this one who you hear about. There's where the confirming word comes. But it doesn't make him greater. It doesn't make him more king. It doesn't make him a more excellent king, nor the kingdom any greater. It just makes you aware of how great it was even before you got there. And it was great even when you were ignorant of it. But seeing him brings her to an understanding, to this conclusion. The half was not told to me. I had to see you to see that. But here's the other thing, she says. God must love these people, this, this nation. He must love these, these people that you rule because he's made you their king. Man, there's the love of God here. Exercise. There's the love of God in Christ Jesus that nothing can separate us from. God must love this people because he's made you their king. And I'm telling you, the fact that he has made Christ to be the king that rules sovereignly in his land, in his kingdom, is the very proof that he loves us. His love for us is not proven by how much he does for us in the natural, how many blessings, natural blessings, monetary blessings, physical, any. That's not how his love is proven. His love was proven at the onset of this journey called salvation, of knowing him. This love of God was bestowed to us or shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost at the very beginning. What was it? He's made him to be the king over you. And because he's king, guess what? Peace, quietness, rest, tranquility, abundance, superabundance, the unsearchability of his wealth and riches, the wisdom that he has made unto us. Solomon was the man of wisdom. And in that wisdom is bound, it, it uh, uh, is contained what? Him being our righteousness our sanctification, our redemption, our justification, our peace, our whatever. There's the man of wisdom, this one made unto us all things. Here's how he loved us. He made him to be king. You see, just like we look out across the ocean and see a nation in turmoil and situation, and we say, his promise hasn't been fulfilled yet to give them this king uh, uh, because they don't dwell safely. And they're not at peace, and they're not delivered yet. It's got to come. The Lord, our righteousness, one day will come. Paul just said, no, he's in you. He's made unto you righteousness. There's the king that reigns. There's the branch. 
But we look at those situations and we say, ah, it can't be. Why? Because there's no external proof of this thing. The same way we look at ourselves and we say his sovereignty cannot be exercised in me. His rule <laughs> can't be active in me because I still do A, B, or C. These things are still present in my daily activities. These are still things I struggle with from day to day. Your day-to-day -day does not determine the sovereignty of the one who's in you because his rule has changed you from the inside. His rule has brought about an internal transaction that's brought you from death unto life, not from good deeds or bad deeds to good deeds. Bad thoughts to great thoughts. Bar hopping to church going. It's not his sovereignty. That's not where it's exercised. That will have its effect as we go on to know the Lord, as we grow and learn and know him, as we experience and comprehend the extent of the superabounding sovereignty of this king. But his sovereignty is exercised inwardly by a work called salvation, by which we are dead to the one and alive unto God through this man. I know we look at these things, and I've heard the question posed, does he rule in you yet? Does he reign in you yet? And I would hear that question, and I would always say, no, apparently not. Because I'm apparently not dead to the world yet. Why? Because I like to go do these things. I like to go and have fun with my friends. I like to do these things. I like to watch this show. Apparently that's totally against God and it, it uproots him from his reign and it, 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 it impedes his sovereign rule. It wouldn't be a sovereign rule if it did. I mean, that's what I'm talking about. We don't understand sovereignty. We don't understand king. So we have all of these questions and all of these caveats, and we have all of these monkey wrenches that we see, that we see thrown into the whole engine, right? And it seems to under to undermine and uproot and overrule who he is and the rule that he exercises. If we only understood the true nature of sovereignty, the true nature of the sovereign rule of our king, then those questions will not be there. Not only would those questions not be there, we would truly live <clears throat> in the peace and quietness that his rule ensures, that his land enjoys. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
It's not a matter of getting your ducks in a row. And I know that sounds terrible because that's what we think Christian living is, living with our ducks in a row, living with our stuff in order. But it's not. It's not. If it was, we have no hope. There is no hope here. But in the dominion as subjects of his reign, there is nothing but quietness and peace. Because of his sovereignty, because of his rule, <clears throat> now, let me read some definitions of the word sovereign here. And I'm doing this just for effect, basically, to show you how, how uh, comprehensive this word is when you, when you speak of sovereignty. Here's some definitions. means to be chiefly above, to be supreme, to be chief. Supreme power. This is the word sovereign or sovereignty. Undisputed. Dominant. Unlimited extent. Absolute. Autonomy. Independent. Absolutely free. Un mitigated, unconditional. That's his rule. The work of God, the work of our Lord in new birth and regeneration is not as one-dimensional as we have considered it to be. And by one-dimensional, I mean that it's not merely God cleansing the dirt from our lives and forgiving us for our wrong actions and our wrong motives. We speak of being born of God and being born of and thus indwelt by the spirit of adoption and the seed of God himself. We're presenting the most awesome and conclusive act of divine autonomy that has ever been exerted. Greater than creating the natural creation. I'm speaking of a salvation that we have received in Christ, the salvation by grace that has settled our souls in the reality of God's own rest in the man in whom he finds his ultimate rest. A once and for all exercising of God's will within a soul that affects that soul entirely by accomplishing within that soul what is unattainable otherwise. We have been saying that those things throughout the lessons in Romans. But we have to, to me, this thought of sovereignty demands that we re refocus our attention so that we see this emphasis that is being made. Because when we understand these things in the light of sovereign rule, we'll stop misunderstanding them in the light of actions, activities, thoughts, and words the way we do. 
We won't think that if the natural mind creeps up behind us and gives us a bad thought or gives us a bad motive or has a bad action attached to it, then we're out, man. This is, I've got to start all over again. It's something that's happened. It's bad. No, not in the sovereign rule of this king. And I want to share with you what can be an example of our disregard for Christ's sovereignty, his divine rule, or the rule of King Grace. There is a writing here, and I got this out of the Bible exposition commentary. There's a writing in that that is from a book called The Apostles Defending His Name. And in this, he gives a quote from St. Augustine, or St. Augustine, however you want to pronounce it. It says, the early church strongly believed in God's sovereignty. Now, again, this is an example of how we misunderstand the sovereignty of God and want to balance it out, because that sovereignty stuff, that's dangerous. <laughs> The early church strongly believed in God's sovereignty and his perfect plan for his people. But note, they did not permit their faith in divine sovereignty to destroy their human responsibility. See, that's the thing. We always have to keep it in check. Back check. Yeah, you can have some sovereignty. You can have some of that grace that God has bestowed. You can have that gift. You can say that it was imputed to you by the power of another, but you have responsibility. And most people's thought of that responsibility is to balance it out by works. Got to balance grace out with works. Got to balance it all out. Because it can't just be not I, but Christ liveth in me. So they did not destroy human responsibility. They were faithful to witness and to pray. Okay. Nothing wrong with witnessing and praying. But what does that have to do with your soul? Your soul's true state of being. It is when God's people get out of balance and overemphasize sovereignty or responsibility, that's true, that the church loses power. There has to be a balance. And so he says, again, we're reminded of Augustine's wise words. Now, these are painted here as wise words. Listen to them. Augustine says, pray as though everything depends on God, but work as though everything depended on you. Those are not wise words. That's a declaration of a misunderstanding of the grace of God. It is putting all the weight. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It could be possible that God, this is all 
on God, that God's the one that does it all, that our souls need to live in absolute, total dependence on him to have, to, to have fulfilled this reality and live in us as that reality fulfilled. Just in case. Just in case that may not be true. Work as hard as you can because it could all depend upon that. What torment disguises wisdom? The declaration of Paul in this gospel, if we truly understand the significance of it, would fall into the category of unbalanced to these folks. He's not working hard enough as if it all depended on him. That quote saddened me. That is not balance. That is unsettledness and pure torment to a soul that is actively pursuing God. There's no certainty there. Pray because you hope everything is dependent on God, but in case it's not, just make sure that things get sufficiently done by you, your works, your efforts, your performance, the extent and exertion of your energies. That's not, that's not the good news. It's a sorry excuse for the good news. Paul declares the fact that in Christ all things consist. That means they are all held harmoniously and cohesively within his own divine person. The author S. Way translation speaks of this and says, he is the I am and in him are all things knit into one whole. that type of basis with that as the divine point of reference regarding our soul state of being, we do not expend our efforts in a roll of the dice attempt to make sure that what God does not or has not handled through his death, burial, and resurrection and his indwelling presence within is handled on our end by our deeds and our works and our zeal. I'm not discounting human responsibility or the responsibility of the believer to not be an idiot or good works. I'm not discounting any of that. I am discounting those things being the determining factor of your soul's condition. I believe those things are to be based upon the assurance of being complete in him. And Christ being made unto us all these things. Not an attempt to become these things or to achieve these things. It all hinges upon that. You have a weak hinge and your life is going to be torture and torment. Your Christian life. Salvation is not a 50-50 proposition. It's a kindly king ruling his subjects internally and providing to those weak vessels because we're always weak. But when we are weak, we are strong. Why? Because the king rules and overrides the weakness of his subjects 
He provides to those weak vessels the sufficiency that does not belong to them. It's not their possession. It cannot be their possession outside of the confines of his sovereignty. It is bestowed, it is imputed as a constituted gift of grace because you live in the realm in which he rules sovereignly. And this is the reality that undergirds the soul and should be the basis of all of our action or our inaction. Not that it's going to achieve anything, but it's out from the reality of his achievement of all things and him being all things in us. Again, you can hear the question, and I know you have. We've all heard people attempt to, de to try to, de to determine the degree of Christ's rule. In, in us, in themselves, in us, by assessing our zeal, our external perfection, our understanding of these things, our multiple other things. They, they will use the, they will look at all of these things in a way to try to, to determine the degree of our salvation or the, how effectual it is. And again, my mind goes back to that question. Yeah, he's in you. I know he's in you, but does he rule? in you yet? Does he reign in you yet? And although that question is asked with all concern and sincerity, I believe it completely misses the point. I think if we could just sit down and consider that question fully, we would realize that it is equivalent to saying are you born again yet? Are you dead to sin and alive unto God yet? Or are you a new creation yet? Are you in Christ yet? Is it not I but Christ liveth in you yet? Because that's a question too. Because we think that comes at the end of a process instead of the beginning of the soul's salvation. That's the state we come to in Christ. First reality of being in Christ is to be entirely affected, entirely affected by his ultimate sovereign rule in the realm of that new creation over which he has dominion. That's spoken in the phrase, old things are passed away. Behold, the new has come. Who did that? Who did that? So much so that he will say, and all things are of God. <coughs> the effectualness of his rule, the efficacy of his rule is never determined by us, not proven by us. The evidence of it will never be seen by us, through us. But it is immeasurably <coughs> excuse me, exercised in us. 
by the work of such power that it has snatched us out of death into life, delivered us from darkness through translating us to the sovereign rule of the son of his love. Salvation itself. And if that rings hollow to you and that sounds very small to you, you need to see Jesus and understand just how great that statement is. Salvation itself, or let's say salvation himself, the state of your soul in Christ is the ultimate proof of his reign. Because we live in a place of rest. We live in a place where the enemies have no place. For <coughs> his rule is the rule. His power is exercised completely and unabated. Nothing subsequent to his indwelling our soul makes his rule any greater or more superabundant. It is the reigning king that we are made to know and must come to know by the spirit and in whose revealed presence we grow up into a greater and greater acknowledgement of the efficacy of his headship and his kingly rule. And while many would have us assess the scope of his dominion or the validity of his rule in us by looking at a multitude of things, the rule of this king of glory is determined exclusively by his presence and is defined in one term. Let's read it. And we'll stop here. Isaiah chapter 52, <clears throat> verse 7. Paul will mirror this statement, quote it in Romans chapter 10. But I want to go here to Isaiah and let's look at it. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings. Here's the gospel. Here's the presentation of the gospel to his people. Here's the presentation of the gospel in his land. Beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that brings good tidings. That's the gospel. That publisheth peace and that bringeth good tidings of or bring that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, thy God reigneth. There it is. There's the gospel. Clare and publish to his people the truth, the good news, and bringing good, declaring this, thy God reigns. That's the gospel. And that's the declaration of your soul's salvation right now. Right now, if you're in Christ, if you're born again, if this king is on his throne in your soul and God has set him upon the throne in that he's made him to be unto you all things, this is your state. 
your God reigns fully and completely in a way that is immeasurable by any method or mean and in a way that cannot be stopped or lessened in any way, shape, or form. We're going to come back to this in our next class. Your God reigns. And he reigns in you. Because you are brought from death unto life. That's, that's an aspect of his rule. You are complete in him. That's his rule being declared. Can you look at yourself and say, I'm complete? No, but you are complete in him because in him is the realm of his dominion and sovereign rule. As long as you're there, as long as you are found there, abide there, live there, exist there, because God has made it to be so. He rules. And because he rules in his own in, uh, intrinsic completeness and perfection, you are perfect and complete in him. Because the kingdom he rules benefits from the nature of the one who rules it. So with that being said, guys, I thank you for your patience to listen. Consider this reality of his sovereignty. And let's begin to look at salvation in the light of his sovereignty instead of in the darkness or what we call the light of our Christian activities, our deeds, our accomplishments, our zeal, our effort. Those aren't bad things, but they can't be the basis. They can't be the determining factor. His rule is his presence upon the throne his presence in you, the fact that he reigns as king. That's what determines it. That gives it all the true basis. Any growth, any understanding, the revealing of the son of God on his throne, the, the revealing of the beloved of God that reigns in your soul, that revealing confirms and already confirmed fact. He reigns in his kingdom. And as his subjects, we don't determine it. We benefit greatly from it. So thank you so much for being with us today. Love you very much. And we will call that a Call that a wrap on this. Thanks again.